I want to ask you, church, to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is where we find ourselves this morning for a standalone sermon that I have titled Old Truths for a New Year. I want to say before we get started, a special thank you and appreciation to the McGee's for opening up their home and their property to us last night for a great time of fellowship. I've been looking forward to that for a whole year, and so now I have a whole year to look forward to it again. So, uh, but I have to tell you, it was a little, it's been a little discombobulating to adjust to thinking about 2023. I know all of you probably had the same thoughts already, how many times you're going to write the date wrong or uh, things of that nature. On Thursday, whenever I was sending my outline to Miss Pat in order to get ready for Sunday, I had to pause for a moment when I was typing 2023 in the subject line because it was just kind of like, that just doesn't seem Right, right. So yet here we are, we're gathered uh, for the first day of the new year. As I've already said and noted, it's just a, a really cool and unique opportunity for us to pause, to take a moment and intentionally focus our thoughts, focus our attentions, our affections, our plans, our goals, and just really kind of frame everything from this first day of the year, starting on the Lord's Day, focusing on gathering around His Word, declaring the truths of His Word, and we get to start the year off right, so to speak. Uh, and I'm just uh, really excited about this. So we, this most recent Advent season provide us with another awesome opportunity to worship together on the Lord's Day on Christmas Day. Now, what I, I want to think about this morning and now what we have to think about is another awesome opportunity to focus all of our attention and affections on this new year. An opportunity to start the new year off right. And this time of year is always associated with new beginnings, fresh starts, a search for new truths, new ideals, new mantras, new lists of goals and activities, things that you want to accomplish in the new year, things that you want to be in the new year. And as I've already said, I've titled this sermon, Old Truths for a New Year. And I intend for us this morning, what I intend for us this morning to see is how the timeless truth of God's Word provides us with a guiding light which will always illuminate the path which keeps us at the center of God's will. So in Psalm 16, I've pulled out seven overarching truths, seven overarching truths which we will see not only here, but we see throughout the Bible and which will guide us in this new year. So I, that's what I want to see is that these truths are here. So these aren't things that you know, I came up with, that they're here in God's word. But these same old truths remain true for us looking forward to a new year. And I think if we stick to these, we look at these and we think about them in light of the year that lies ahead, they're going to guide us and provide us um, uh, with what, Lord willing, may be many more years to come. So these are truths which we'll need to cling to, meditate on, and live out in the new year if we're going to take full advantage of it for the glory of God. Because that's really the source of trying to come up with new goals, new tasks, uh, new you know, sayings, mantras, what have you, is how can I take full advantage of this year that lies ahead and have a, have a fresh restart here? 
And my goal this morning for us to see if we, if we meditate on these truths, if we want to truly take advantage of the year that lies ahead for the glory of God in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, for us as a church, and for the sake of the gospel being made known to the nations, then we must rely on the truth of God's Word. And so with that in mind, I want to invite you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's Word as we look at Psalm 16. Verses 1 through 11 is our text this morning. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we sit here and analyze the truth of your word as we consider the truth of your word and its application to our lives and how it motivates us. And as we sit here with this unique opportunity of starting the new year off right, gathering around your word as a community of faith, I pray that you would just bless this time. And I pray that you would bless the year that lies ahead. Give us all necessary strength and endurance. Give us all necessary wisdom and truth from your word that it may guide us to walk in obedience to your will and it may guide us in making your glory and your gospel known among the nations. And pray all of this now in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So this psalm, Psalm 16, is one of six mitkams. That, that word that you see, a mictum of David, there at the title. And it's one of six mictums that appear throughout the book of Psalms. And there's some disagreement as to what that title of mictum could mean. Some think it could be derived from the Hebrew word for gold, therefore meaning this psalm carries great importance. Some think it could indicate the tune to sing this psalm with. Some think that it's derived from the meaning of to, to cut or engrave. So in other words, that, that the psalmist in, indicates that this is something to be engraved on their tombstone or engraved as a, a, a symbol of their life. And so while this point may not be clear as to what exactly that means, it's certain that David packs into this short psalm many profound and wide-reaching theological truths which uh, just spread throughout all of Scripture. So this psalm exudes confidence in the Lord as the all-sufficient provider for those who trust in Him. 
This psalm is intended to cultivate confidence in the Lord's care and contentment in His loving kindness. It's unclear as to exactly when David wrote this psalm because there's no, nothing in it that would give us indication and it's not stated. However, given the resounding plea which we begin the psalm with, we know it came from a situation of great distress. And so we uh, turn your attention there to verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So the word there for preserve is the Hebrew word samreni. All right, samreni, which means to guard. In other places, uh, this is used to refer to the care for uh, a shepherd has for guard over his sheep or uh, that guards are guarding the kings, watchmen uh, watching over the kings. So this psalm begins with a plea to the Lord for preservation and protection, that the Lord would guard him and keep him. This plea is indicative of David crying out from a place of danger or suffering. But what's interesting here in this first line is that David provides a reason. He provides a reason for his bold yet humbling plea to the Lord. He says right there, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So David turns to the Lord in his moment of distress Because the Lord is his source of protection, strength, assurance, and salvation. So church, if we are to live out our days maximizing every second for the glory of God, then here's the first point on your outline, the first thing I want to to take note of. Then if we're going to live out our days maximizing every second for the glory of God, then we must seek the Lord as our only source. Now, you might look at that and you might say, that's, a, that's an incomplete sentence. Our only source of what? And my answer to that is yes. All right? It was intentionally written that way. All right? Seek the Lord as our only source. David's confidence here comes from the one with whom he is familiar with as his refuge. We must seek the Lord as our only source of all that we need and desire. When we do this, it will illuminate for us a few things which we could not rightly see before on our own. When we seek refuge elsewhere, these things which I want to make note of become dull, unclear, shadowed, veiled. But when we seek the Lord as our refuge, a few things become abundantly clear. The first being the weakness of our flesh is abundantly clear when we seek the Lord as our refuge because we have to seek refuge. And it highlights for us our need for protection, provision, a source outside of ourselves. When we come to our knees and realize the weakness of our flesh, and when we earnestly seek God as our only source, we are forced to realize just how needy we actually are. And yet this reveals another reality for us. 
that no matter how depraved our flesh makes us and no matter how needy we are, God is faithful to provide and God is faithful to be that refuge for us. So not only does it highlight the fact that we are in desperate need of a refuge, we're in desperate need of a source outside of ourselves, but it highlights the fact that God faithfully and graciously provides himself as that source and as that refuge. The other thing that we see, that's the other thing that we see here. So when we live with this mindset that no matter what unknown we face in the year ahead, we face it with full confidence in God's providence and ability to sustain us. So no matter what victories we face in the year ahead, we know that those victories come as God's gracious provision and are for God's glory. No matter what trials we face in the year ahead, we face them knowing with full confidence that God will grant us the necessary endurance and He will be glorified in it all. And this is why we can confidently cry out with David, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So let that be the first anthem, the first charge, the first mantra, if you will, for the new year. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. It is only when we seek God as the source of all good things that we can rightly align our desires and expectations and goals for this world and this life. Because when we seek God as our refuge, it rightly highlights for us the emptiness of the provision of the world. That no matter what the world seems to be able to provide us with, it is ultimately empty in comparison to all the good things that God provides us with when we seek refuge in Him. If we seek good from any other source, we set ourselves up for ultimate disappointment and disaster. When we rightly view God as the giver of all good things, then, not only, then we not only change our expectations of this world, but we can also rightly focus our pleas for provision. As the psalm moves to the next stanza, David paints a similar contrast for us. If you look there to verse 3. So he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom my soul, de- in, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So we we have a contrast here that David paints for us. But first, before we can see that contrast, we need to see who the players are here that he's highlighting. So who are the saints? So saints here refers to those who are holy or holy ones is how the word literally translates. So all of Israel are God's holy ones to the extent that they as a nation have been consecrated by God and are his covenant people. However, that this doesn't mean that all of Israel is holy by nature or are walking lives of complete holiness in accordance with God's word. Only those who are seeking to walk in obedience to his command can be considered holy ones. So thus we see 
God's repeated command to be holy in accordance with His holiness. So David's distinction here is that those in the land who can rightly be called holy ones, those are the ones whom he desires to be around. That is the community of faith that he delights in. Right? You see that? So as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. On this side of the cross, in Christ, we have come to fully realize God's purposing to make himself known among the nations through Israel. And Paul makes it crystal clear for us throughout the New Testament that because of the work of Christ on the cross, we have been brought near and unified into one body as his church. And so if we're going to take every moment captive for the glory of God to be made known through us, we must delight in the community of God's church. So Jesus himself said in John 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in other words, a distinctive for us as followers and disciples of Christ is this if we delight in the community which he has forged us into. Which means if we spend our time nitpicking and nagging and causing strife between our brothers and sisters, if we're seeking to destroy the very thing which Christ formed as his vehicle for taking the gospel to the nation. Is if you've struggled with your relationships within the church, if you've waned in your commitment to the church, or even actively chosen divisiveness over unity, make this year the year which you choose to glorify God by delighting in His church. There's another truth which David notes here in his contrast as he highlights the sorrows, uh, excuse me, verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom my soul delights. So then the contrast he paints is verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So this other contrast, which he points, is between the godly and the unfaithful. So you have those who are holy ones, and then you have those who run after another God. And he points out what the produce or the fruit of those pursuits are. The fruit of those who pursue uh, holiness, they're the ones whom I delight in. He finds delight in being in fellowship with those who are holy. So when he looks at those who are not pursuing holiness... But rather the adverse are uh, seeking fellowship with false gods and the delight is in worshiping false gods. He sees that their sorrows are going to increase in perpetuity. That is that their sorrows do nothing but multiply. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Just building on one another continuously. So he resolves that he will not have any part in it. 
He won't even mention their names uh, of these false gods on their lips. He's not participating in any of these activities. And this is the contrast that we must delight in the community of the church while avoiding the practices and behaviors of those who run after another god. Whether that be a false god of a different religion or the god of self. Church, if we want to live every moment for the glory of God in the new year, we must acknowledge the severity of sin. That's what I want to highlight right here. Is he's highlighting those who are pursuing holiness and living holy lives, and he delights to be in fellowship with them. And then those who live in wanton sinfulness, I, I'm not, I don't want anything to do with them. I won't pour out their drink offerings. I'm not even taking their name on my lips, he says. And so if we, as his church, want to live every moment for the glory of God, we must acknowledge the severity of sin and have that in full view as we move forward into a new year. Consider this. Have you ever paused to consider the weight of our sinfulness? And I'm not even talking about the weight of your sinfulness individually, but just our sinfulness in general. The, I mean, just the totality of sin. This affront against a holy God. Because here's the thing. He who stands as the only one who could quantify that weight, that totality of sinfulness. God's the only one who could quantify that and, and, and really wrap and, and understand it. He did not preserve that knowledge as something to count against us into eternity, as he rightly could have. But instead, he subjected Christ to be the one whom he would place that weight on. So he knew the totality of our sin. And rather than leaving it justly over us, which he rightly could have, he justly put it on the shoulders of Christ. We cannot live as saints, as holy ones, while not continually regarding our sinfulness as an ultimate affront to a holy God. If our sin doesn't offend us, if we don't realize how severe our sin is and seek to consistently flee from it, then what are we doing? When we acknowledge the severity of our sin, the overwhelming weight of the just punishment we deserve, it makes the grace of God in Christ on the cross all the sweeter. And that's why we can have complete confidence and freely talk about the weight and the totality and the severity of our sin is because we can talk about it in light of the grace of cross on the Christ. And it also makes the grace of God and Christ on the cross that much more difficult to comprehend. That's why... David is able to make this contrast and say he's, he's tasted what is good because God is, I have no good apart from you. I don't want anything to do with those who pursue what is not of you. I want only to be in fellowship with those who pursue you. And so because he's tasted what is good and he's in right relationship, a good relationship with the Lord, he knows I want nothing to do with anything that would separate this and break this apart. 
And he's able to make this contrast and say, I've seen what sorrows abound for those who live outside your rule. I've even pursued those things, right? As we know, David did. And I want nothing to do with that. And this is what leads us into the next verses. Pick back up in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So when David has the perspective of delighting in the community of faith, acknowledging the severity of sin and how much of an affront it is to a holy God, and he rebukes that, and then that gives him the proper perspective to look at what he has and what the Lord has blessed him with. And he's able to say, my portion, my cup, and my lot rest with you, Lord. It's interesting that David uses that language there of lot and portion and inheritance. And this is most likely in reference to when the Lord was dividing up the land among the nations and lots were being drawn. However, the tribe of Levi... If you're familiar here with Numbers, and this uh, Numbers chapter 18 is where this takes place. The tribe of Levi is not given a portion at all. And this is what we read in Numbers chapter 18, verse 20. And the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So having the perspective of the Lord as his refuge and only source of good, delighting only in the community of faith, rebuking the severity of sin, David finds satisfaction and content in the Lord's providential provision. He sees what he has, everything that he's been given, including his covenant with God and God's promise that he would have one to reign over the throne forever as God's sovereign design. No more and no less. The implication for all those who are in Christ, David's greater, more perfect heir, is that if we are to glorify him, we must be wholly content in what he providentially orders and provides in our lives. We must find content in the Lord's provision. What is the primary inheritance which he has provided us as saints. That is our salvation. In Christ, he has given us the right of the firstborn son. We see this theme of inheritance and adoption throughout the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Hebrews, 1 Peter. And we read this in Ephesians 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And how much more can we, on this side of the cross, let those lines abound 
with great joy in the inheritance that has been provided us in Christ. As followers of Christ, we must find complete content in the Lord's providential provision in all things. The primary of which is our salvation. So if you're struggling to find content with where you're at in life and what the Lord has provided in all other areas of your life, anchor yourself to finding content in His provision of your salvation. That's, that's the point I want to make here. And we find content in the Lord's provision. And if you struggle with that, anchor yourself in finding content in His provision of your salvation. And that will rightly realign all other areas of His provision and provide proper perspective on all other things. Because when we view everything through the lens of the reality that we completely did not deserve our salvation, but He has given us inheritance as firstborn sons, then everything else then that we have in life or don't have in life pales in comparison to that. And He continues to give us this proper perspective and proper response to this as we move to verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So don't miss this one, all right? Don't miss this one. Take note here of what it is that David finds delight in. He finds delight in God's constant presence. Because the Lord has given him what? Counsel. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. So the, the presence of the Lord, he delights in that. He rejoices in that. He worships God because of it. And where does that come from? Who gives me counsel? His word. He blesses or worships the Lord because... The Lord has given him counsel. The Lord has given him counsel, therefore his heart instructs him in the night. He sets the Lord always before him, therefore he is as close as being at his right hand. This anchors him and steadies him in all things, the Lord's counsel. The Lord has counseled him, therefore he intently sets the Lord before him, and gives him which gives him a sure rock of stability. Church, in order for us to endure whatever lay ahead, in order for us to properly rejoice in whatever lays ahead, in order for us to properly walk the path that lay ahead, and in order for us to traverse the challenges for God's glory, we must treasure God's word as our fountain of truth. It is of utmost importance to me that we produce as a church, disciples who hunger and thirst for the truth of God's Word and who have a firm grasp on the truth of God's Word and walk in accordance with the truth of God's Word. May God's counsel ever be our guide and may we ever praise Him for it. Because as we continue reading, this treasuring of God's counsel is the very foundation for the proceeding verses, for the verses that come after it. So the Lord 
is my chosen, excuse me. Uh, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So why is his flesh secure in the present? Because he has set the Lord always before himself. Because the Lord has given him counsel. Therefore, everything in this life is but a shadow of what is to come. He has set the Lord always before him. Therefore, he has proper perspective on how God is providentially working in all circumstances. He has set the Lord before him. Therefore, he lives not with simply the present as his scope, but he lives with eternity in mind. That's the next point there on your outline. Live, if we are to fully take advantage of this upcoming year for the glory of God, we must live with eternity in view. So both Peter and Paul cite these verses in reference to Christ. So the the messianic nature of this psalm cannot be avoided. It is clear and obvious. But Peter and Paul make that even more so. Peter does so in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2. I'll encourage you to turn there or you can simply make a note. But in Acts 2, uh, verses 25 through 28 is where Peter cites these verses and then he, he provides commentary for the audience and for us. Brothers, so this is after he's cited the verses that we've just read there. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Paul also cites this verse. My point in showing these references is that I want us to see how these verses clearly point to Christ and how David was clearly, in in Peter's mind, obviously, clearly thinking in terms of eternity, that his flesh was secure because the Lord had given him counsel. He was confident and had rock-solid assurance and could not be shaken because the Lord had given him counsel. Therefore, his heart is glad and his whole being rejoices and his flesh in the moment and in the present dwells secure. Why? Because he knows that he will not ultimately be abandoned to Sheol nor let his Holy One see corruption. But then Peter points out, David certainly has a tomb to this day and has died. But this promise fulfilled in Christ and in the resurrection of Christ. When we live life looking through the lens of eternity, we realize that there is nothing that can harm us here that will ultimately impact the joy that we will experience in the presence of God and the assurance that we have of our salvation in Christ. When we live with eternity in view, 
is when we have the proper perspective on the vapor in the wind that is this life. And this is as we see how David ends this beautiful psalm. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So God has made known the path of life in his word, in his counsel. And he's made known the path of life to us in his word and in the gospel which it contains. Therefore, illuminating our path to his presence where we realize the true joy that he created us for. Church, let us focus on God as the fullness of our joy. Because that is where his word guides us, to realize that we have placed our joy elsewhere and that our joy is to rightly be found in God alone. So as we look forward to a new year, I ask you the same question which I asked just a few weeks ago as part of Advent is, where is your joy? And where are you seeking to put your joy in the new year? There are plenty of things to be excited about in the new year. Goals to set for ourselves. But one of the things that I'm most excited about for us as a church is the opportunities that we have coming up for mission trips. Because I want to tell you to get ready, church, because we're going. And so when the time comes, I hope to see a sign-up sheet, an interest sheet full. And I don't want it to see it full because Brother Blake said so. I want to see a sign-up sheet full because we all see the mandate in God's Word that He has told us to find our joy in Him and Him alone, and that He has created us as His church to be the vehicle which takes that news, that good news, to find joy in Him to the nations, and that we'll simultaneously say, I will walk in obedience to it. Because when God is the fullness of our joy and his word is the fountain of our truth, we can't help but see the call to take the gospel to the nations. Secondly, we can't help but look at that mission as of far greater importance than anything else. When God is the fullness of our joy and his word is the fountain of truth, we'll easily say, my vacation time is worth it. We'll easily say, my family trip is worth it for the sake of the gospel. My time, my treasures, and talents are all worth it for the sake of the gospel. And in this new year, may we faithfully seek the Lord as our only source. May we delight in the community of his church. May we acknowledge the severity of sin and find content in his providential provision. And may we treasure his word as the fountain of truth while living with eternity in view and our focus squarely on him as the fullness of our joy. Let's pray, church. God, as we consider these seven truths which we have pulled from your word, I pray that they would resound in us, looking forward into a new year, that you would help us to intently look forward at the opportunity that lie ahead for us to glorify you as a church family, for us to glorify you in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, in our jobs, for us to glorify you here in our community, for us to glorify you abroad. 
May we consider all of these things and find our complete and full joy in you and walking in obedience to the truth of your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.